0: You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast on the Alternate Thursdays network that relives and revisits every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. This project is a little premature because his legendary career isn't over, uh, but because there's probably not going to be any tennis until next year, uh, certainly no Grand Slams, this is as good a time as any to start. Um, I connected with Brian, Brian Clark, for this project because I wanted a rock-solid hitting partner. What tennis podcast is true to form without a formidable hitting partner? Brian, I'm going to let you share a little bit more about yourself, but you're a sports broadcaster, and tennis is one of the sports you cover, Uh, and I just want to say right off the bat actually that's a bad pun, right off the racket, I'm thankful and lucky to have convinced you to embark on this journey with me. So thanks.
1: Well, Vic, thank you for suggesting this idea because as you said, we are without tennis for the foreseeable future. Hopefully that's shorter rather than later. But this is a really fun way to look back at what's been In the eyes of a lot of people, the golden age of men's tennis, maybe not in the United States, but certainly around the world with Roger Federer and all who then came after him. Now, just so everybody knows about me, first, I got introduced to you because I listened to your excellent of Bing uh, Sopranos retrospective podcast. So we connected through Twitter, Magical Mediums, and here we are. I work in sports, as you said, as a broadcaster. I also work in news, but I do a lot in tennis. I work uh, for the US Open, the USTA. I've broadcast that tournament for... Hopefully, this will be the 11th straight year, but TBD, about the 2020 edition, uh, ATP Tennis Radio. I've worked at the Australian Open, World Team Tennis here in the U.S., uh, Davis Cup, some other different events. And then just being a tennis fan, you certainly know who Roger Federer is. So away we go.
0: The format for the podcast to start uh, is pretty simple. We're going to go back and forth with questions, topics, observations, and musings. Uh, Things will surely evolve, and we'll try some new stuff down the road. Maybe uh, some through-the-leg trick shots, if you will, uh, from time to time. Brian, before you serve first, so to speak, share a personal Federer story or Federer moment, as they're sometimes called.
1: Well, Vic, I think it's just everywhere you go because, okay, 20 grand slams, that's a record. But is Roger Federer the greatest player ever? I mean, that's very much up for debate, both in terms of players who came before him and players who've now come after him. When you look at Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, his two biggest contemporary rivals. But with that said, there's no player forget in tennis, maybe in sports, that's more beloved than Roger Federer. The reaction when he walks onto a court anywhere in the world, it feels like you're at an event. It has that big feel where people don't necessarily care about I want to watch good tennis. They want to see Roger Federer. He's a celebrity. He is an icon. And I think the fact that we're creating this podcast speaks to just the larger-than-life status he has. So to me, that has become the interesting thing of the last 20 years, watching watching Federer go from this excellent tennis player to an all-time great to now this global icon.
0: For me, look, that debate is always going to be there. It's a debate in sports for every major sport, you know, LeBron, Kobe. Uh, Jordan Federer for a while for a minute was the runaway favorite and now he has I don't know if you want to call them imminent threats I think it's fair to say I'm I'm a total Federer apologist and you'll hear me (laughs) defend him uh, as we go through this but I am also realistic enough to know that time uh, favors Djokovic I think maybe uh, if you were to he's a a little notch above Nadal in terms of overtaking Federer for the the Grand Slam titles but I think it's I think he's in a league of his own in terms of the way he plays and the beauty of his game Um, and for me Uh, as a fan, taking a page out of uh, David Foster Wallace's book, his beauty is unsurpassed. And it's a question of what's your style of tennis? What style of tennis do you like? And for me, it's always been Roger, like watching him has been a gift. And that's part of the inspiration behind this. Where do you stand, though, in terms of all time? And I'm not asking you to predict if you don't want to go there,
1: but like, is he the GOAT? Well, I think that's the great argument. And we could do a whole podcast series probably on that. But I do, I think I have a, I'm not a federal apologist, like you just described yourself. He is one of the greatest of all time. But I do, just based on my work, tend to look at it with a, a little bit more of a critical eye. And we'll get into Nadal and Djokovic as we move on in the series. But I think that Djokovic uh, has the case. When you look at What he's done, what he can do, because he's got the advantage of time on his side, you would think, presumably the body holds up, and you look at his head-to-head record against Federer, we'll get to their one and only time when Roger beat him in a Grand Slam final, that's coming up in a couple of years down our podcast road here, but when you look at the head-to-head, I think that's a factor, I think there are a lot of different factors that tilt things maybe in Djokovic's favor, where Federer's a runaway is popularity, and I think that's unfortunate for Novak, because he is a good guy, he's done uncountable amounts of philanthropic work around the world. He's got the charities. He's a great ambassador for the sport, but he had the misfortune of coming after Federer and after Nadal had already established himself and built these rabid fan bases. So I think that adds and stirs the pot of this GOAT debate. And I'm also, I kind of brushed past Nadal there, who is certainly the greatest clay court player of all time, but with the way he's played on hard courts over the last couple of years, he's won as many U.S. Opens as Roger Federer, and he's won all five of them since Federer won his last U.S. Open. So you don't just, Nadal's not a clay court specialist. He's one of the greats of all time. And that's why I go back to what I was saying before, where this is the golden era of men's tennis.
0: Oh, for sure. It's just so fun to even be able to like break this stuff down with you. I'm just getting, I'm chomping at the bit here. Uh, It's your serve. What's first on your list?
1: Well, I think when we go back to Wimbledon 2003, we have to look at where tennis was at the time, because if we're in the golden era now, we were not in the golden era in 2003. It was wide open. In a lot of ways, that's really good. Women's tennis over the last couple of years with, you know, Serena missing some time and aging a bit, that's been wide open and there's it's produced a lot of fun variety. But when you go into Wimbledon 2003, where we're going to start this journey, the last 10 major tournaments leading into that one, there had been eight different winners. So, That's that kind of variety. Pete Sampras was one of those winners, but he was gone. He hadn't officially retired yet, but he was... We knew he was done after that 2002 U.S. Open win. He went out on top. Uh, Leighton Hewitt, he was the world number one. He had won the U.S. Open. He had won Wimbledon. But was Leighton Hewitt going to be this all-time great player? You weren't sure about that. There were some other younger players we were waiting for. Andy Roddick, David Nalbandian, and certainly Roger Federer. This generation of guys, we wanted to see them come to the front, and it was Federer who took his time to do that here at Wimbledon.
0: Do you remember who uh, Sampras beat in 0-2? At the U.S. Uh, Open? Yeah, Agassi. He beat Agassi.
1: He lost to Safin in 01, right? Or was that 03? He lost to Safin in 01, yes. Okay. No, excuse me. He lost to Safin in 2000. uh, Hewitt in in 01.
0: Okay, perfect. Thank you for correcting me. I remember that Safin match, the final against Sampras, as being sort of like his undoing a little bit. I just remember viscerally, and I didn't go back and watch that for this, but we'll talk a little bit about Sampras, obviously, at the tail end of his career here. But um, do you remember that match against Safin, and do you
1: remember how visibly broken he was after it? I remember that vividly because he was absolute. uh, Safin blew him off the court. Yeah. And that's one of the, we'll get to Safin down this road a little bit too, Um, one of the biggest enigmas, you could say, over the last 20 years, because he had all the talent in the world. He was a charismatic guy. Yeah, he won some majors. Should he have won more? You can make that argument. But yeah, that looked like one of those changing of the guard matches where the old guy just gets absolutely dusted by the young guy, Marat Safin. By the way,
0: um, before I jump into my first thing, I have a bunch of stats and a bunch of like facts and figures. If at any point you want to jump in and add some color to it, just do it,
1: okay? Great. Um, And one thing I want to jump in on, too, I... I said Nadal won the U.S. Open five times. It's four. Um, That's fine. We're going to trip it up, but Wikipedia is always our
0: friend, and we can yeah, be, exactly. we'll be each other's fact checker. So for me, the interesting thing coming into this is, like, we know Roger now is the guy that won 20 Grand Slams and in, potentially has the chance to win one more. I think it's fair to say that Wimbledon is his best shot at this point, but... Looking back, this is kind of a retrospective opportunity here, what were the years before like? The build-up to this tournament, um, you might be able to speak to this. He had what experts consider to be an underwhelming professional start. There was a match he played against Federer two years prior at Wimbledon, or I'm sorry, there was a match he played against Sampras two years prior, a stunning five-setter, he Reached the quarterfinals of that Wimbledon and the French Open that year. Um, that was another match that kind of showed you that Sampras was sort of on, not on necessarily on the decline, but that uh, something physically and something emotionally were communicating through the television sets, at least my television set, that, <laughs> that Sampras's time was coming to an end. But the following year, Federer was unspectacular, right? So he gets to the quarters at Wimbledon, he gets to the quarters at the French, but the he's knocked out in the first round in, in the French and Wimbledon the following year. The Guardian, among other many press outlets, are writing things about him saying, you know, the whole world of tennis has been willing Federer to win a major tournament ever since he took his first tentative step into the Grand Slam stratosphere. My question for you, Brian, is any thoughts on what was different about him Prior to winning his titles, what were the experts seeing and talking about that they were putting this sort of pressure on him to be a champion, if you will?
1: Well, I think what was different with Federer was, and he was the first one of what's now become a trend where he didn't start winning until he was older in tennis years. When you looked back into the 90s and you saw guys like Sampras, like Agassi, like Boris Becker winning when they were, you know, 1920, Federer was old when he won Wimbledon. He was almost 22. So it hadn't he still needed some seasoning. He won the Wimbledon Juniors in 1998. He was a top junior. But as you said, there were those fits and starts that I think a lot of people just don't have patience for. If we think we live in a fast-paced time now, yeah, it's more so now than it was in 2003, but it was there then. People want the instant gratification. If they hear about somebody being exciting, look at the way Federer plays. It's a very visually pleasing form of tennis. So you want this guy to produce. You want him to do well. It's like what we've seen for 10 years now with Grigor Dimitrov who plays that same brand, that really exciting, exotic-looking tennis. You want him to do well. You want him to come good. But with Federer, it was those fits and starts. As you said, the big win over Sampras at Wimbledon in 2001. He won his first pro title that year. He had turned pro a few years before that. But then there's a few backwards steps, and there's that give and take that comes to being a top player, and he had not yet gotten all the way through yet. I think You see that now with guys like Alex Zverev, as you wait for him. He he won the big Masters title. He won the ATP uh, Finals a couple of years ago. You're seeing that with these younger guys, but it is different now with the five sets, the three sets, and the different format, the pressure. These younger guys have a tougher time when they're playing their idols. Federer, okay, Sampras was his idol, but the other guys, his contemporaries, weren't necessarily his idols, and sometimes that can be difficult, too. You mentioned uh, Dimitrov. Did his... Early media labeling of baby Fed, did that destroy him? I don't think it destroyed him, but it certainly didn't help him. Um, I think Federer was probably the first one to say that it's really not fair to this guy who is.
0: Did Federer coin the term?
1: No, no, no. I, I think Federer was oh, one who pointed out. Got that it. It's not. And their buddies, I mean, Dimitrov beat him a couple of years ago, at the last year at the U.S. Open. So yeah, Dimitrov has carved out a great career for himself, but it has not been the career that people were talking about when they were saying he's going to be the next Roger Federer. So that's why I also think when we look at Federer heading into Wimbledon 2003, it's not like he was considered this can't-miss prospect who had busted. It was just like, okay, is he another guy who did well in juniors, and he's going to have a nice career, but he's not going to... Reach the the tippy top of the game. It wasn't quite like he's a phenom who's missed. It's just sort of okay. Wh- where is he? Wh- what is this guy? What's he going to do next? When is he going to come good? And here we go.
0: His storyline is it fair to say was sort of put to the front row, if you will, because of the beauty of his game. He was visually stunning to watch.
1: Yeah, I think that did a lot. Yeah, beating Pete Sampras will yeah. certainly do that, and winning. And when you go to all these Grand Slams, especially Wimbledon if you win the junior tournament, there's going to be the spotlight that follows you for the next couple of years every time you come back. And Federer had won in 98, the Wimbledon boys title. So now five years later, but the spotlight had shined a little bit differently on him for all those subsequent years, because you're thinking here's a Wimbledon junior champion. What's he going to do in the big show? What's your number two? Yeah. So it it just builds off who Roger Federer was going into this tournament. Roger Federer, when you look at him now and he's intense, locked in on the court, but you very rarely see him smash a racket or visibly lose his temper. When he was growing up, he had struggled emotionally and with his temper on the court, he would break rackets. And so there was that kind of refining needed to his game that I think also maybe played a part in him getting to where he eventually got to where he just had to mature and grow up and be able to handle the adversity that comes with a tennis match and the ebbs and the flows. You're great one moment, the next minute. Yeah, you know, tennis is really tough like that because okay, if if you're pitching a perfect game in tennis, let's say you you win the first set 6-2, you don't get extra points for that. You still have to win the second set, the third set, and maybe four and five, depending on how things go. So it is just a different kind of mental challenge than any other sport. I I try to avoid too many comparisons between tennis and other sports because they can get a little convoluted just based on the nature of the sport. But I almost think Federer going into this tournament, it's like... He wasn't considered to be LeBron, but remember when LeBron James went to the Miami Heat and everybody's waiting for him to win that first year, they lose in the finals and everybody's crushing LeBron. Then they finally get back the next year and win it. And now the modern day LeBron's born. It's almost like that where, you know, he's got the talent, but you're just waiting for the results to match the talent. And here he was finally able to put it together.
0: You mentioned the temper that's well-documented, um, I had to go into the archives. You know, this is a, this was a long time ago by internet standards, so I was looking at, like, newspaper clippings. Um, I used the Ancestry.com as a service called newspapers.com. It's and one I of got my there. favorite
1: things in the world.
0: Yeah, and I was, like, I was doing, like, microfiche, like, back in, like, <laughs> elementary school. But um, I, I wanted to read about his his temper. And he is one of the legendary transformational figures of mental performance, if you will, because you know he had this storied, checkered past. Uh, Do you know anything about that? Can you speak about that at all? Was it a coach? Was it a really good psychiatrist? Did he have a Dr. Melfi that got into his head? Um, How did he turn that off? Because there's people like, look, Nick Kyrgios could have a legendary career of his own, but he can't get out of his own way. Um, And some of the things he did very early on, I remember a match that he played against Nadal, I don't know what tournament it was. It was definitely a Grand Slam. It was Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Kyrgios just decimates Nadal, and I'm like, this guy's, he's the guy. But then every single match, you see him come undone. Um, What can you say about Federer turning that that kryptonite off, if you will?
1: I think a lot of it, is just maturity. As you grow up, you, you're able to realize, step back, take a different, more mature look at things, and realize that maybe the way you're doing it is not the best way forward. Peter Lundgren, who was his coach at Wimbledon 2003, I think he had a lot to do with just refining that focus and getting him to not waste the energy in terms of having a, not a tantrum on the court, but wasting energy on negative emotions. When you talk to tennis coaches, they that's something they talk about all the time, that when you see a guy ranting and raving you know that he's not expending that energy on his tennis or on his focus it's a waste of energy now some people use that Andy Murray is an example you'll hear he's got this running dialogue it's usually profane with his courtside uh, team his coach and family whoever's sitting in the box courtside and he's cursing and you think oh he must hate these people that's just his natural outlet Federer's wasn't that his was more Between the lines of the court, it was becoming a problem, and I think just as he got older, as he matured and figured things out, he naturally cleaned that up with the help of the family. He's got a great family set up with his parents and grew up really around the sport, and then Peter Lundgren, his coach at the time, I think all of those things together just refined him into a more focused player.
0: I think it's one of the things that you had on your list, and I'm going to let you get to it, but stability. He's had the same people in his box since day one, and that I think that speaks volumes. Um, my second thing was Nadal in this tournament. Um, obviously, Nadal is going to be a parallel storyline as we go through this, right? So I kind of wanted to bring him into the fold as soon as we could. He played in this tournament, uh, and he lost to Peridor and Shrichapan, who I was a big fan of because uh, he was different. He was a different player. He was big. Um, He reminded me of like a character in the the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, uh, Bloodsport. You know, he's like a guy that you would see on Bloodsport. (laughs) And he was like one of those guys on the tour in the tournament that would always be there. He came in ranked uh, 12, I believe. And... um, This was a three-set victory for Sri So he dispatched Nadal pretty quickly, but he lost in the next round to five-ranked Andy Roddick in four sets. Um, Andy Roddick is going to be a subject down our lists here. Sri reached a world rank of nine in his career, and his window of greatness was this 2003-2004 season of tennis. Um, He had some big career wins against now legends that we know, but he never broke out of the fourth
1: round of any major. Any thoughts or any perspectives on Sri I think he's just the kind of player that we were talking about, how this was such a wide open time for men's tennis. There's a lot of players over the last 10, 15 years who I think in any other era would have won multiple majors, Tomas Burdich, Joe Sanga, Gael Monfils, but they, David Ferrer certainly, but they had the misfortune really of playing at the same time as these all-time greats in Federer, Djokovic, Nadal and Andy Murray, too. You can throw him in that group as well. Uh, So he's the kind of player who was a very good, excellent player, made a nice career for himself. But that's who he was. That was tennis at the time. He was a top-ten player. But is he going to be Nadal? No. But going to Nadal for a second, because you talked about him, I like the blood sport comparison because if we'll call Street Japan a blood sport character, I think you could call Nadal Frank Dukes because he has, <laughs> you know, just is a brawler. And that's one reason why he's so endearing to people around the world because he is going. If you had one player to play a point with your life on the line, I think most people would pick Nadal just because you know, okay, if he doesn't win the point, well, that's bad. But. He's not going to give anything less than 100% effort. We talked about Federer. He had a promising junior career, but it was not the level of Nadal. Nadal had a lot more hype because of what he was doing as a junior. Now, of course, a lot of that was on clay, his best surface. And we'll talk about the surface in a bit because that's important. When Nadal started winning Wimbledon, the court had slowed down. This 2003 Wimbledon was one of the last, what you would almost call the traditional Wimbledons, with a really fast court that favored the serve and volleyers. So it was a little bit different down the road but here is nadal he's looming and we know what he's delivered in the decade and a half since i'm going to put you on the spot sidebar here
0: we're just two guys talking tennis because we can't watch it right now okay so no one's going to hold you to this okay um federer nadal and djokovic all three start their career on the same day okay and now we are here in april of 2020
1: who has more Grand Slams? It's a really good question. And I think this is semantics, but when, do, what's the date that this career starts? Because this matters, and I'll tell you why. Oh, you're looking at age. No, I'm not looking at age. I'm, I'm assuming they're the same age. I'm, I'm looking at the conditions around the courts because the court conditions and speeds have changed, and they favor certain styles. So give me a date that seems realistic, and then we'll, we, I can... Be more analytical with the hypothetical.
0: No, I see what you're saying. My problem, though, is that if I date it too late, then Federer is older, right? So he has the age disadvantage. I guess it's an imperfect question, but let's assume that they were all in juniors at the same time. So they're okay. all in their prime, okay? Let's just, let's just cut out age, and let's just say they all came out in 1998— um, and they had to go against the Sampras and they had to go against the Agassiz and uh, build their career at the same time as Rogers. Who do you think is the top dog standing right now?
1: I think it's probably Roger because I think he still would have won Wimbledon. But I think you look at he would have won a few more U.S. Opens because they've really slowed that down over the over the years. The court it's it's played slower. Um, and I think that has does that has mean? Hurt- So basically, it's the amount of sand that's used in the concrete, um, in the cement that's poured for the court. And basically, a slower court is going to prolong points. Great for Nadal. That's why he's so good on clay. But Federer... He is best on a fast surface. He can come, He can play. He's got such an all-around game that it translates well to any surface. Djokovic is similar to this as well, but Djokovic can handle the slower court, I think, better than Federer has been able to over the years. Now, Federer, of course, can still handle a slow court, but it's not his most ideal surface. So when the U.S. Open was playing faster, when you look at the early 2000s in the 90s, if Federer played more tournaments like that on those conditions, I think he would have won a few more of those than the five he did, which is not a bad haul. Mm. Okay, what's your three? Just taking a look at uh, Federer in this tournament, because when you look at, we talked earlier about, Okay, he had b- had the big win against Sampras in 2001, but then he hadn't backed that up. And when you look at what he had done in the majors going into Wimbledon in 2003, fourth round Australia lost to David Nalbandian, who was one of the top players at the time and a member of that Federer generation. And then he loses in the first round of the French Open. So you're thinking, okay, w- again, where is Federer going into this tournament? Is he somebody we should be paying attention to? He had had the results. He had he won in Hala on grass, so he had a grass title. And you're thinking, okay, he could play Roddick down the road in this tournament with the way the draw lined up. And when you look at how he got there, the injury in, the I think, the third round, he hurt his back against Feliciano Lopez, another guy is still out there grinding today, um, but he was able to shake that off. And... One of those videos that goes around the internet where Federer's is recapping his titles, it's funny how he he kind of yachty yachted this. He said, Well, you know, I, I was playing Lopez, I hurt my back, and the next thing you know, I'm in the Wimbledon final. That's a pretty big jump there. He had to win two more matches after beating Lopez, one of them against Andy Roddick. But once he got that Roddick win, that almost felt like, especially for everybody who loves the storyline and who doesn't love the storyline more than sports writers and media people this whole next these young guns showdown but then when you see him in the final against a guy and mark Philippoussis, who had had an up and down career he'd already been to a major final a few years earlier but he wasn't one of these promising young guys that almost felt a little anticlimactic but at the but at the same time here's nadal or here's federer rather who managed to get through this draw with pretty minimal fuss after the back issue and then get into the final my number three is the other
0: players and the storylines in this tournament. Uh, some of it we're gonna we're gonna get into as we go down our list. But again, we've mentioned Pete Sampras. He did not play in this Wimbledon. He wasn't officially retired yet. Uh, I think he retired in the two thousand three U.S. Open, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had not played since the two thousand two U.S. Open, which you mentioned earlier. He beat Agassi in the final, and and yes, he did finish on top. Um, Another hypothetical, uh, do you think, and obviously I'm asking you to get into Pete Sampras's brain here, but this this is what this is all about, is fun. Do you think he saw Federer and was like, I need to get one more because this guy's the guy? Do you think he thought Federer was going to be the guy when he got destroyed in the U.S. Open, or or is that way too premature?
1: Um, yeah, I think that's too premature. I think he could see that it's natural too. you see the young people coming and you know that, well, okay, wow, these guys are really good. This is going to be tough. Um most competitors, they do like that challenge, and they want to beat those guys. But no, I don't think it was because of that. Um, you know, he had had some emotional ups and downs in his career with a different moment, so I think it was more about just getting that last win at the u s Open against his contemporary and rival in Andre Agassi. I'm sure that was a a nice sweetener for him as well. But no, I don't think it was because he saw them coming and he thought, I need to get out of here. I'm sure he realized, I need to win another one because it's not going to get any easier. But once he did that, that was just the way to go. Leighton Hewitt, before we jump to four,
0: Leighton Hewitt was the defending champ and he was the one seed. He lost in the first round. Um, that's something that doesn't happen very often. And I'm surprised that in general, like as a tennis fan, those aren't bigger stories. Like whenever, whenever a major player on the men's or the women's side gets knocked out in the first round, it's not made into a bigger deal. I think it's partially maybe you can speak to this but it has to do with the momentum of the tournament but like i remember a guy named tip saravich who beat a big name player i think he beat agassi or he beat somebody who he wasn't supposed to beat and um and he just didn't get enough of a he didn't get enough of a of a trajectory if you will any thoughts or sort of perspectives on those like shocker those first round ncaa tournament upsets
1: if you will i think you you hit the nail on the head it's the momentum of a tournament when this happens especially at wimbledon where they've got the tradition the men's champion opens play on center court one o'clock the next day by one o'clock matches are in the books um there's a hundred matches going on it's just frantic activity so to look at one match like that and think also with the way tennis goes yeah you you So much changes in a year, but it's not like it's any team professional sport where you go as a defending champion. These guys, okay, the Wimbledon champion is a big deal, but the amount of tournaments you play in between Wimbledon one year to Wimbledon the next year, it's just such an ongoing march, an ongoing cycle that you don't quite carry that same cachet unless you are, you know, now as Serena Williams or Roger Federer, one of those people, but a young Leighton Hewitt. Yeah, it was the world number one. It's a big deal. But just that momentum of the tournament, it doesn't quite lend itself to everybody. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. And reflecting on it, you, you do that for about five seconds and then you move on to the next thing.
0: I want to get to your number four, but I also want to say one other player in this tournament, Agassi in the tournament, was ranked two. He lost in the fourth round to the eventual finalist, Mark Philippoussis in a five-set battle. He went up two sets to one and then lost the last two, which is, I think is a storyline that Agassi laments in his book, uh, Open, many times. He's always he, he's found himself up, but ultimately losing several close matches, um, which I think there's something that we can talk about down the road here. He, I have an aside on him. He's my number six, so I'll save that for later. What's your number four? So
1: once Federer gets to the final, I think it's important to look at who he played, and that's Mark Philippoussis. Okay, let's do it. So here in the final, it's Mark Philippoussis, and that felt a little strange because there's so much attention on Federer's road to the final, the showdown with Roddick earlier in the tournament, but here he's got Mark Philippoussis, who had been around for a while, and he had certainly been around the headlines. It's not dissimilar to today, an Australian in Australian and Nick Kyrgios, who made a lot of news based off what he did on the court and what he did off the court. Philip was a guy who liked to have a good time. He admitted that, and that was maybe hampered him a bit on the court, but he had been to the U S open final five years earlier, lost to another Australian and Pat Rafter. And this was one of those big boom times for Australian tennis. You had Pat Rafter had won Wimbledon in 2001 you had Leighton Hewitt winning Wimbledon in 2002. Now here's Philippousis in the 2003 final, fresh off the big win over Agassi. His nickname was Scud because he could absolutely bomb serves. He had more than 40 aces in that win over Agassi. And that's his biggest weapon. But the problem is, as we've seen now for almost 15 years, when you've got one weapon against Federer, that's not enough. It's He's got the whole arsenal. And now you've seen the game evolve where players are more well-rounded. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a baseline game. And when you've got the big serve, look at Pete Sampras... You could certainly be very successful playing a baseline style, but for Philippoussis on this day, it was a nice run that he had gotten to the final because he had been to that U.S. Open final. He had had some big wins for Australian Davis Cup, also clashed a bit with the establishment, not just the media, but some of the Australian tennis establishment. He wasn't necessarily the golden child that a Hewitt was or a Pat Rafter was. So it was a nice result for him just to get to this final. But I think when we look at this final and the way it played out, you could see that maybe that was the accomplishment, getting to the Wimbledon final, because it was pretty one-sided once they actually started playing.
0: Just two years ago, right? He was in a wheelchair.
1: Yeah, he had had uh, that, I think it was a back injury Um and so, yeah, so just to get back to the to the Wimbledon final, get back to be playing professional tennis is an accomplishment in itself. Certainly the Wimbledon final. He had had, he had played Federer earlier that year. I think they played on clay. They, they knew each other pretty well. Um, so th- there was familiarity there. But yeah, he was a, another one of those guys who was a top player at the time. Um, just a, a elite professional tennis player. Is he the best of the best? Probably not, but he is in that point oh oh one percent who could be at a top 10 level. I think he got to eight in the world. Federer came into the match with a 2-1
0: lead against Philippoussis, and he had 21 aces to Mark's 14, so uh, and 23 unreturned serves. So you were talking about Philippoussis's power. Federer actually was the better server in this match. I think Part of that. One of my questions for you is the is the journey that Philippoussis had to the final versus Federer, um, because you mentioned against Agassi, Philippoussis had forty six aces, uh, but he played a five setter. Um, right. Agassi only had ten in that game, and one of the things that people say about Federer is that when he wins the first set, he's essentially unbeatable. Even then, they were saying that, before he had actually even won a Grand Slam. Speak to that a little bit. How important is the first set for
1: Federer? How important is the first set, generally speaking? Well, the first set's huge, and it also depends on the format. If you're in a best-of-three match, yeah, it's massive to win the first set, but I think it's less important when you're in a best-of-five match that you play at a major. It's also different based on the time i mean now federer as he's about to be 39 years old if he loses the first set of a best of 5 match you're thinking okay that road to come back just got that much harder because he's a bit older when he's younger it's a different story he was a more intimidating he was probably an even more intimidating player than um but yeah he is a player who leads from the front. He's not a player who's going, he can fight back, but when he gets ahead of steam and gets out in front, I think that's one of the most impressive traits about him. When you look at the, the whole argument about the greatest of all time, there are so many little nuanced things that I don't think get enough credit. And one of them for Federer is how many times you see him just get out there and absolutely take care of business. You, you'll see Nadal get dragged down into a match that, okay, he might win in three sets, but he's on the court for Two hours, 20 minutes, two and a half hours early in a tournament. You'll see Federer sometimes, the uh, let's say the U.S. Open, there's a women's match first in the night session. It goes long. Federer's not on court until 10 o'clock, 10.30. You're thinking, oh, he's this is going to be late night. He's not going to be happy. And he's on and off the court in 90 minutes, 80 minutes. He absolutely flies through it. I think there's something to that, just about what a pace setter he is. And I think that translates what you're talking about, how, how he's so tough after winning the first set.
0: I like what you said there. That's exactly he he loosens up when he's ahead, and when he loosens up, the pressure goes to the other side, right? The other the opponent he's he's in their head, and that's sort of the key to his victory. I think it's been I think it's been one of the things that have that has separated him from the pack. Observation that I had in watching this the final again, Federer won the point more often than not the longer the rally, and this will come back right when we talk about him versus Nadal. You do not want to get into a rally with Nadal uh, or Djokovic for that matter. But what was unique about this was the longer the point went in this match, it favored Federer. I don't know if there's anything to say for that. The match, the play of the match was a 15-shot rally uh, where Federer hits a winner, um, but they go back and forth, and he's running up and down the court, and he's setting up his shot so nicely. I thought it was an interesting thing, looking back retrospectively at his career, that usually this is not his strong point. Usually, like you said, he's quick and fast, get in and out of the point, Um, but here it was a little bit more, and we're going to talk about Roddick, too. I want to talk about that semifinal. Uh, There were a lot of long
1: rallies in that match,
0: and it favored Federer, paradoxically.
1: Well, in a lot of ways, it's a sign of what was to come at Wimbledon because they changed the grass uh, a year or two after 2003. And by changing the grass, it slowed it down a bit. When you look at, when you watch the old John McEnroe Bjorn Borg matches from the early 1980s, it's shocking if you see a point that's more than three shots because it's, it's serving volley tennis on repeat over and over again. This 2003 final still had plenty of and volley. It was what you could call an old-school Wimbledon final. But you could see Federer, okay, if I can extend this point, I'm going to do better than Filipousis because he had more weapons to do so. He was probably in a better condition than Mark Philippoussis was. So the longer those points go on, he's able to hang in those rallies. That's why the conditioning is so important. So I do think it's, it's sort of a trendsetter for the years to come and what we now see at Wimbledon. You can always tell when you watch a Wimbledon final, they've been playing on the grass at center court for two weeks by that point, and it's basically brown. But when you looked in the 80s 90s you would see the grass around the net was brown now when you look at a Wimbledon final the grass around the net is very light wear and it's the baseline that's ground down into brown just it looks like your county fairgrounds after parking for two weeks because that's where the players are playing it's a different style than we saw years ago and I think we did see those emerging trends in this final
0: interesting love that so he handily beat two of the biggest servers in the game and he showed that the sport was trending or the media and the sort of the pundits were predicting that it was going to be more of a power game right Federer comes in and wins and shows you that uh, it's not necessarily all about power question for you Filipousis had back-to-back five-set matches coming into the final Um, later in an interview I think a couple of years ago he said that he expected to win the match against Federer. He had beaten him earlier that year in the round of 16 at a tournament in Hamburg, Hamburg. If Philippousis had not played back-to-back five-set matches, would the result have been any different?
1: It's just, it's just impossible to say because did that take something out of him? I would say almost certainly, but you know, maybe you know, Federer just came out focused that day. I mean, Federer is a, a more talented player than Philippousis was, but could Philippousis maybe boom a few more aces if he hadn't played back-to-back five-setters? Perhaps. But at the same time, I, I think it's... Did you say he had back-to-back five-setters, but in the semifinal was a three-setter? So he had the back-to-back five-setters, then the semifinal went over another very talented player in Sebastian Grosjean. But by the time it got to the final... Yeah, that's a lot of miles on the legs. But you know, Federer had had the back issue against Feliciano Lopez, so maybe he was physically compromised. Recovery's different. Then Um, I I don't know if it would have made a huge difference. I think it's just too we're too far removed to exactly say if that would have made a big difference.
0: My number four is actually a question for you. How do you feel? And maybe you can give an education to me and, and listeners. How do you feel about tennis rankings generally? Is the system flawed? Could it be better?
1: Well, I think the ranking system, basically, it, it tries to reward how well you do on a week-in, week-out basis. So it rewards consistency and it rewards winning. Wimbledon is different. Uh, they tweaked the rankings right around this time in the early 2000s be- when there became fewer and fewer grass court tournaments. They wanted to account more for grass court play. So they basically would keep older results on the books longer than the usual rank, or they still do this. They keep the older results on the books for a little bit longer Um they decrease the value of them, but they're still, around. they're still around. Whereas if you are playing every other week on the ATP tour, it's just, okay, it's your, how did you do here? Okay, you won this tournament last year. Well, now you come into this tournament this year defending those points. Anything short of winning the tournament again, the number of points you have is going to fall. But on the other hand, let's say the next week, okay, a year ago, I lost in the first round. I only earned you know, 50 points, whatever it was, depending on the value of the tournament. This year, I win it okay, you're going to get a big boost. So that part, sure, it sounds great, but I think it's a little too harsh on the players, whereas I wouldn't mind seeing something that maybe keeps those older results on the books for a little bit longer, an 18-month rolling system maybe. So it's not quite as harsh just to cut people off.
0: Um, I'm going to do what's called a stats changeover sidebar. So every pod, we'll do a little stat corner at the halfway mark. Just want to re-familiarize ourselves with Fed's journey to the title. So... First round, Federer's ranked four. He beats Jung Tak Lee in the first round, 6 6-3, 6-3, I don't recall any major matches that Lee was a part of. Do you? Any lead no. stories? Okay. And sometimes that'll be the case, but like, if there is an anecdote on any of these players, I want you to insert your wisdom here. Um sure. Second round, he played Austrian Stefan Kubek, and also, uh, correct my mispronunciations if there are any, uh, 756161. Same with Kubek, Brian, another name that never stuck for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was a top 25, top 20 player. He had won a couple of titles. He's a nice, solid career that... But yeah, he's not Roger Federer. He becomes a footnote in this historic story. I like that word. A lot of
0: these guys, and I'll use that episodes going forward, a lot of these guys are footnotes in the story, but they're part of the story,
1: no less. But this is, to me, what one thing about tennis that I don't think people grasp enough. I, I just said, I almost dismissed this guy. Like, oh, he's top 20, top 25 player. You're a top 20 player in the NBA. You're an all-star. Yes. Whereas in tennis, you're like, oh, okay, who, top 20, like, people... The average sports fan doesn't really care, which is a shame because you're the top 20 in the world at a very, very hard sport. That's quite an accomplishment. For sure. No, do
0: not want to discount. I would even say being a top 100 player in the world, it's like, you know how you know how many tennis players would want to be in the top 100? You know, it's uh, how many people would want to be in the top 100 of their profession? Exactly. It's something that does get discounted, I think, unfairly, and I, I'm glad you said that. Uh, Third round, he played American Marty Fish. Any thoughts on Marty Fish's game and career?
1: Uh, Interesting time for Marty Fish here because this was in the early part of his career. He went on a few weeks after this tournament. He won Cincinnati, the Masters event. So that was a huge win. And he was part of that Roddick, James Blake, uh, Robbie Ginepri generation where a lot was expected of them. But for Fish, he was the late bloomer. Um, He got himself into better shape down the road. Very interesting, though, how his career Turned out because when he was playing at his best tennis, uh, top ten level, 2012, he was supposed to play Federer at the U.S. Open. I think it was on Labor Day or on Labor Day Sunday, so it was a huge match going in. And he actually had he had begun dealing with um, a- anxiety issues, so he had essentially um, he couldn't play the match. He was he has now been very open with his story and his struggles about it. He was on in the car on the way to the tennis center in New York, and he was telling his wife, I I can't play the match because he had an arrhythmia in his heart and he, that would lead to trigger, the anxiety. And it was this awful perpetuating cycle. So he was not able to play that match was able to come back and kind of end his career on his own terms a few years later, but it's a shame that he wasn't able to take the court that day against Federer. Now he's a Davis cup captain. He had a a very nice career, but this was uh, one of the earlier looks at Marty fish. Hmm. Uh, fourth round, you mentioned it earlier, Spain's Feliciano Lopez. This is the game
0: where Federer had back pain and almost quit. Brian, would his career be any different today had he forfeited that match?
1: I would say no. Um, yes, he would have won less title um, unless he had won somewhere, uh, something else. But no, I don't think this would have been a you know a Roberto Duran no mas moment. Um, there's certainly no shame in that for these guys that are hurt. Um yeah, but one thing that's interesting to me, let me just check this stat because I, I think it's very illustrative. Okay. Feliciano Lopez, he has earned in his career. More than $17 million. But this goes to speak about the nature of pro tennis. $17 million in a career, that sounds great. He is also the losingest player in the history of the ATP Tour. He has lost 449 matches. And that's what tennis is it is a sport of failure. There's only one player who goes home happy, or with a title at least, at the end of every week. So for Feliciano Lopez to make $17 million, he's won big titles. He's been a top 10, or just outside the top 10 in his career. He's still grinding it out, but to lose almost 450 times and then to get back on the horse, I think that just shows what tennis is in a nutshell. Which is what? That it's a hard, demanding, grueling sport. And you're doing this by yourself, too. It's not, okay, I had a bad game today, but you know my teammates scored 25 points, so we, we were able to win. If you have a bad game on the court, you're exposed. There's nobody out there helping you. There's nobody you can pass off to. You can't you know, they can't sit you down to get your breath. You're out there. You're in the arena. I think that it can be hackneyed at times to call these tennis players gladiators or boxers, but that's what it is. It's you and the other person on the other side of the net. You're trying to beat each other. And if you don't have it that day, you don't have it that day. And you basically get called a loser for that day. You mentioned it very early at the top of the pod that um, you resisted making
0: sports comparisons with tennis but um i've always used boxing as an analogy and you said it is boxing the closest thing to tennis that there is
1: definitely yeah it definitely is just by the one-on-one nature it's just you and the other person um obviously the you're not punching the person but everything else is very comparable let's talk andy
0: roddick the semi um, it was a straight set victory for federer in the semi-final against roddick they exchanged bruising rallies, right? I went back and watched the clips on this nine point rallies, nine, nine, six, five. Um, surprisingly long rallies for by Federer standards. And the interesting thing, Brian, for me was that they happened on Andy's serve, right? Andy was the killer server, which means that Roger was recovering and withstanding his speed and brutal power. And Roger's not considered one of the great returners of the game, but he was returning one of the greatest servers of the game. This particular match, there were more rallies, six, five, nine, 13, 14 shot rallies, Signature Roger. His games were short and efficient, but here he went outside of the box, which I think speaks to what you said that he had the total arsenal. And I think this game is noted in his sort of history as being
1: one of his greatest performances on grass. Is that is that accurate? I think he did feel that way just because of, of what it meant. And I think that when you talk about Federer as, and his return of serve, he's not Djokovic, who's probably the greatest returner of all time. Agassi's certainly up there as well. But Federer is so effective at just taking all that power. It's why he did so well against Roddick in their career head-to-head and just, re, just blocking it back into the court, redirecting it. And then all of a sudden, if you're a player like Andy Roddick or any of these players, with a or Mark Philippoussis with a big, booming serve, you, it's such a weapon, it's such an advantage against 9 out of 10 players that you can just bomb a couple of big first serves, you hold, no problem. But when all of a sudden that serve's coming back at you and you have to play an extra shot, and an extra two shots, it's just a different, it's uncomfortable because it's not how you're used to playing. So that's another reason why Federer has been so good because he's able to absorb the weaponry that his opponents have and just direct it back at them. And that's an uncomfortable place to be in. Beautifully said. Uh, Roddick at the end of the match said, I got my butt kicked and that was a precursor of
0: things to come, right? Because we have watched uh, them play against each other 24 times. Uh, Federer went 21 of 24 and three, and 0 in the Wimbledon uh, match observation for you, Brian Roddick turns his hat backwards in the second set uh, made me wonder what his record differential was, front-facing versus rear-facing hat. I don't know if you have a comment or a story about that, but it was interesting that you mentioned that he's these guys are in the arena by themselves, and the only physical manifestation of, oh, shit, was him turning his hat backwards. It was a beautiful message to Federer, if nothing
1: else. Yeah, it's like that you put on the hard hat, it's like you're going to work. Funny you mention that with the hat, though, because Brad Gilbert was Roddick's coach at the time, and Brad Gilbert has now been very vocal that the one rule he had with Roddick, no visor, because the years before that, Andy would wear the visor, and he he quickly uh, squashed that. I don't think he had full autonomy to dictate the hat choice, but Roddick uh, had been more of the visor. The interesting point, though, that forward and backwards had, I think the forward was probably more businesslike, um, but that head-to-head you talked about, especially at Wimbledon where he beats him here. And then he beat him three times in the final, that one Epic 2009 final. We'll get to those down the road. It just shows that how Federer is able with that full bag of tricks to blunt Roddick and take away what he could do best and exert himself on the game. That's why Roddick, uh, you know, struggled to beat Roger in their careers. What's next on your list, Brian? Yeah, the blueprints in place for the future. Um, so here's my thought about this. You know, when Tiger Woods won the Masters in 1997 and he shattered the record, he looked unlike any other golfer. He's wearing the Nike. It, it was a different time. You, you sense that changing of the guard. I don't think you sense that with this win for Federer over Mark Philippoussis. You think, okay, here, it's easy to say now. It was certainly not changing of the guard, but a defining, definitive moment in sports. But at the time... I would love a time machine just to go back and think, okay, is this the next big thing? Or is this, okay, we've now got another new winner um, of a major. We've seen Hewitt win. We've seen Safin win over the last few years. We've seen different guys win on clay. Uh, Sampras, Agassi are still hanging around. It didn't feel like that watching this, but... You could see the groundwork. You look courtside, you see Mirka, who's now his wife, was then his girlfriend. She was a former pro. They met uh, representing Switzerland at the Olympics in 2000. She had injuries, so she basically devoted herself to being Federer's almost chief of staff. And they've had this partnership. I mean, obviously, they're married with four children. But in terms of their tennis partnership that's worked out well, I think that stability has served him really well. And you could see those elements in place. His parents, they're still traveling to matches frequently here almost 20 years later, but they're there. They're watching their son in the Wimbledon final win Wimbledon for the first time. So while this didn't feel to me like this is the new dawning of the new age of tennis, it did feel like, okay, I could see how it turned into that. The seeds were planted for what eventually blossomed.
0: Before we wind down, I want to say a couple of things about Agassi's career up to okay. this point coming into the 2003 Wimbledon. The only Wimbledon he ever won was in 92, which was, I, I knew somewhere in the back of my mind, but it, looking back at it now, it was kind of surprising that it was very early in his career and um, there was only one. Um, his best tournament, titles-wise, was the Australian, and he won it earlier that year, 2003. What do you remember about Agassi, and what's his legacy today? And have the big three of tennis
1: eroded his greatness at all? Um, I don't think they've eroded so much as I think there's a proper amount of people realize that one era complements another. Um, if you look back at some tennis from the nineties, it might not be the most aesthetically pleasing with guys on the baseline, just hammering serves at each other and crushing forehands. There's not big, long rallies, but when you look at what Agassi could do, um, in terms of off the return, off both wings, the serve, he was that complete player. He didn't have quite the weaponry in terms of being a complete player that Federer does, but he was a player that, when you talk about players who, today's game, or maybe a little bit older, I might be dating myself, but when you look at players, let's say who are 30, who was is, who is their favorite player going up, growing up? Many of them are going to say Agassi, because he's that iconic guy. Somewhere else where I think Agassi, has really fared well. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think his book and how open he is, and that's the title of the book, but about his struggles in tennis, in life, figuring things out off the court, his personal life, all the different struggles with his family, his relationships. I think when he opened himself up like that, that also created this whole new appreciation. Because remember in the 90s, he won Wimbledon 92. He's the next big thing. And then he had this reputation as basically a brat, when he kind of fell off the tennis page. But by this point in the early 2000s, when he had built himself back up, he was with Steffi Graf at that point. So he had the stability on the home front. And he was just able to, he's still trying, he's out there grinding. And he, I say grinding like it's a bad thing, but he's in winning majors, major finals. So he's still a top player. So at this point, I think it was, you're watching, okay, this is a guy who's reinvented himself. And here he is. So I I think he was more popular now than he was then.
0: You know, uh, his book's one of the greatest books I've ever read still to this day, and I can't— It's so good, yeah. I I can't recommend it enough. Um, A question about him for you, and this is a general sort of topic, especially now, you see, we are going to go back and forth between other sports, right? So uh, in the NBA, players team up, you know, superstars team up with other superstars. What you've seen recently in tennis is star players— having star coaches agassi post-career coached a few players he coached Djokovic and he coached dimitrov who you mentioned earlier what do you think someone like a Djokovic, who's probably got the best shot of being the men's grand slam leader at the end of all this right what does someone like him learn from agassi like h- how do those relationships materialize and how do those relationships usually end up playing out
1: It's actually very interesting that you lead off with Djokovic there because I I don't think that partnership worked with Agassi. That was when he was going through the different periods with injuries. And at the same time, you look at players who maybe work with less heralded celebrities. And Djokovic is a great example. He's been with Marion Vida when he had his initial climb, and now he's back with Marion Vida, also working with Goran Isovich. But Marion Vida has been by his side for all of the great points of his career. Why do they do it, though? Well, I think it, it helps when you get to a certain rarefied air. There's only so many people who know exactly what you're going through. I think the best example of this in terms of benefit was Yvonne Lendl and Andy Murray, because Murray had this reputation of a guy who couldn't break through. He could not win that that elusive Grand Slam just like Yvonne Lendl had back in the 1980s. Lendl teams up with Murray. They go to work on some things. Andy Murray wins the U.S. Open. It was the best tennis, some of the best tennis of his career. So that worked. It's interesting to see the differences. Uh, Kane Shakori, Michael Chang, that's a partnership that's worked. There's other people involved too with Dante Bettini. Um, But it's really, in tennis, when you get these celebrity coaches, it's almost like if you've got an NFL team and there's a head coach, but there's like a hot offensive coordinator... Some of these top, top players, they've got a guy, you know, maybe the day-to-day is not so much... No, let me take that back. Sometimes with these celebrity coaches, it they're not there day in, day out. There's somebody else who's doing work on the everyday level, and the coach comes in for X amount of weeks out of the year. It's an interesting setup with tennis coaching, but they come in, and I think it's just to provide a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective, and... Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Another good example, uh, Nicholas Massou, who had a very good career, uh, won a gold medal at the Olympics, but now he's been with Dominic Team for the last year, and Dominic Team's played the best tennis of his life over the last year when he made that adjustment to working with Nicholas Massou. So Massou, uh, a very good player, but he's not an Andre Agassi-level player. So it's interesting to see how those partnerships evolve and wind up together. Who has Federer had the most success with? That's a good question. I, I think Paul Anacone um, yeah. was was like the salad days, but then he, you know, when he brought on Stefan Edberg, um, that was the different uh, the the saber thing you that sneak attack by Roger at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. So it helps to get the different perspectives in. Ivan Ljubicic has worked out well with Federer. It's also funny with Federer too how he's got coaching from guys who are you know, his, his former rivals, his contemporaries, like Ivan Lubacic. So he is transitioned, I would say through the eras with some different coaches. We talked about Peter Lundgren before and how he helped him sort of refine his game into a level where he eventually won a grand slam and became the top player and met the potential that he had. Before you jump into your last thing or your next thing, I want to close the book on Agassi real quick. He
0: played Sampras 34 times, only won 14 of those matches uh, played Federer 11 times, and Federer won eight out of those 11. Interestingly, Agassi won the first three times they played, so Federer figured something out, clearly. Yeah, I think that
1: makes sense, too, once guys just figure things out. Agassi had the advantage of a decade of experience on yes. tour before that, and then once Federer figured some stuff out, including in uh, you know the U.S. Open final a few years after this, but yeah, then it was one-way traffic.
0: Yeah, his last Grand Slam, as you just mentioned, was the 2005 U.S. Open,
1: which we'll save for when we do that pod. Um, What do you have next? Well, I always like looking at what players do after they have the breakthrough and win that first major. And Federer, I don't know if you'd see this today, he was on the court two days later playing on clay in Switzerland, probably his home tournament. Might have been some guaranteed appearance money. Certainly didn't want to bail on that one. Played, got to the final there. Uh, Rest of the year, though, he... Fourth round of the U.S. Open, had a chance to take over the number one ranking at different points during that summer, but he could not punch through. That was Roddick, who won that U.S. Open, his first and turned out to be only major title. Roddick took over as number one Federer though did come back end of the year he won the Tennis Masters Cup now called the ATP finals beat Agassi in a straight set win in the finals there so it certainly was a solid way to end the season and it was by far at that point the best season of Federer's life the only thing that was really missing was that year-end number one ranking or the number one ranking at any point
0: Brian serious question ponytail Federer wavy hair Federer was that a sponsor's nudge or was that just maturity
1: i think it was maturity um i will say how about bleach blonde federer when he was a top (laughs) junior and he had discovered the the peroxide if you look at him winning the orange bowl the big junior tournament he's got the bleach blonde hair there's also a great picture of him from around that time in his childhood bedroom and i think he has a pic he has posters on the wall if i remember correctly He's got one of Michael Jordan and one of Pam Anderson. So he's basically the any kid growing up in the 1990s. He just happened to be Roger Federer. I love that you delivered for me on that one.
0: Um, I think we definitely need to address his hair every single uh, Grand Slam episode because his hair is as legendary as his game. Absolutely. And it has gone through the motions. So um, I think we crisscrossed a little bit. So I got two more things I want to run through the brian clark machine here you kind of have touched on this already but when a court is considered quick what does that mean like what is the difference between a quick court
1: and a slow one technical tennis It's how fast the ball plays, uh, the speed of the court. And when you look on a hard court, you can control the speed of the court by the amount of sand they use in the mix of the concrete that goes down. Um, So a slower court is going to extend points. Nadal has done so well on slow courts. A clay court is the slowest kind of court you can think of. Grass is faster, and that favors Federer based on his movement, based on how he can pretty much do any kind of shot from any position. Uh, His shots are very simple. They're very they don't require a lot of time to set up. So, yeah, he is better on a quicker court, which Wimbledon used to be the fastest court. I mean, it's still very fast, but it's not quite what it was in the serve and volleying heyday before, let's say two thousand and four.
0: Do the players have any say as to what the courts are, like if, if the if there's variability from season to season or year to year, Obviously I've heard disgruntled players mentioning this about that or this about that, but is there any sort of uh, consensus or is there any sort of input or is it just arbitrarily decried
1: by the tournament people? Well, exactly. Players have a lot to say about the courts, but they don't have any say in the speed of the courts. You can get your conspiracy theorists online and think, Oh, well, you know, they're going to basically a lot of people think courts have been slowed down deliberately to extend points. Um, And while there could be some benefits to that, it also takes a greater physical toll on the players. And the season's already very long, so longer points aren't necessarily great for players. So they'll talk about the different speeds a lot, but no, the players... I mean, if there's a a huge outcry that this is ridiculous, something will get tweaked for the next year, but generally, no, there's no direct player says this, so the tournament does that.
0: Last thing I have for you before we do our little handshake final thought... I want to do a throwback, um, one-handed backhand versus two-handed backhand. A um, little nerd out on backhands, if you will. The pros and cons, as you see it, one versus the other. And what do you prefer generally to watch? By the way, do you play tennis?
1: Yeah, I don't play it well, though. Okay, me either. I mean, I think anybody who watches tennis wants to watch a one-handed backhand. Um, Just because Why? it's such... So- it's such a good looking shot. I mean, especially when you see a Federer doing it, you look at the Stan while who does it, but does it differently where Stan's comes off like a missile. Federer is okay. Finessed. It's got plenty of the back. It's got plenty of pace to it, but it's, it's susceptible to being broken down. Um, And that's why Nadal had so much success early on, especially on clay against Federer, because when depending on how much the ball's kicking, and you look on Nadal's able to get so much topspin on the ball that it it kicks so high, and he's a lefty too. So when you're a lefty like Nadal is, and you're playing it, you're serving into the Federer backhand, when it's got that kick with the one-hand backhand, it's hard to get it under control Mm. like it would be on a two-hand backhand. So there are some limitations, but... These guys have certainly made it work uh, for them. Take the uh, usual suspects off the table here. Who
0: is in your top three for the most devastating
1: two-handed backhand? Uh, that's very good. Uh, actually, somebody we talked about, uh, David Nalbandi. Yes, I think is. Yeah, he's. I mean, I think he's one of the more. I don't know if underrated is the word, but overlooked, let's say, because he never won a major. But he was a top player for the better part of a decade, and his backhand was an absolute missile with the two hands. I'll say Djokovic, too. I mean, he's a usual suspect, though, but his backhand is excellent.
0: Agassi, obviously, was considered the best returner in the game uh, with his two-handed backhand until Djokovic came on the scene. I reluctantly relinquished the title to Djokovic very late in his career (laughs) because I was a huge Agassi guy, too. Um, Murray's another guy, right? His angles, his two-handed backhand angles on the shots were like just devastating. A guy that I don't think gets enough love, um, I'm curious what how you feel about him. He's one of my favorite players, actually, in the tour. Uh, has been ever since he beat Federer in the U.S. Open, I believe it was 2010, Juan Martin Del Potro.
1: Yeah, 2009. Um, 2009, thank you. His backhand's good, but his forehand is great. So I think the forehand gets, um, but the other issue with Del Potro is the biggest issue, the injuries. And that has really hampered the way he produced those shots. So it, it's, it's been limited. And I think something else it's, when you talk about a two hand backhand, I think in terms of uh, you use Andy Murray as an example, yeah, he's got a great two hand backhand, but he has elite speed and athleticism. So just to be able to get in position, to make those shots, I think it's more of a testament to the kind of athlete he is and how fast he is on the tennis court that he's able to get in position to generate what he generates off the backhand. I think next
0: one we do, there's a there's a match between Federer and Nalbandian, and Nalbandian hits a missile uh, two-handed jumping backhand. The jumping backhands, they just put me on the floor every time I see them. I can't wait to get into that one with you. But for uh, for one-handed backhand, besides Federer, who you got?
1: Uh, I'll say Stan, uh, because Stan Walrinka, because it's served him quite well over the years in the major finals. Um, Dimitrios looks very good. That's sort of how he got the baby fed nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dominic Team, um, because okay. that was a switch. He started as a two hand guy, then he went to the one, and that's worked quite well. Final thoughts, Brian. We're walking to the net we're walking in the net and yeah. So I just read a book about Charles Lindbergh. He landed on a grass field in Paris, uh, 1927. He got off the plane. He was mobbed. He knew the world had changed his world had changed. Roger Federer on the grass in London, his world had changed the tennis world had changed, but I don't think we knew it yet. Um, Mark Philippousis almost becomes a footnote in this story. He's a trivia answer. Who's the first player Federer beat in a major final. There's your answer. Um, we were waiting for Federer to come good. We didn't know how good or how great he would be, but the promise had been there, and now we saw the results that followed up that promise and the results of the Wimbledon title. First Swiss person to ever, for a Swiss man to ever win Wimbledon. So that was an accomplishment at the time. Uh, he's still the only one to stand. That's the only thing that eludes Stan Wawrinka in terms of his career Grand Slam. But here's Roger Federer, the Wimbledon champion, and I just think we didn't realize that we were looking at this brave new world of tennis.
0: Yeah, no, looking back at it, and my final thought is sort of just a, is just gratitude for, the despite the trying times that we're in right now, to be able to look back at this storied career and to be able to share this experience together is a true gift. Um, but yeah, just looking back at, this was his first one, and I think I read it in your notes somewhere or somewhere else when we were pr- for the prep, that it was kind of an unspectacular sort of, yeah, I, I won I won Wimbledon. If you watch his speech at the end of this match, he sort of like holds the trophies up. He's like, I always wanted one of these and and now I have it. And little did he know, and little did the rest of us know that there would be 19
1: more. So it's going to be a fun journey, man. Absolutely. I'm really excited. And I think something we'll see as we go forward on this journey, and we talked about it earlier, is the fan reaction. Okay, anybody who's at a Wimbledon final, it's a big deal, but you know, there's a lot of Australians in London. There were a lot of Philippouss fans at Wimbledon. They probably knew Mark Philippous. They did know Mark Philippous more than they knew Roger Federer. So you didn't see the adulation that you saw down the road when he started playing in more and more Wimbledon finals. Um, And we will see that grow, which I also think adds to the legend. But it's just funny that, you know, everything's got to start somewhere. And this was the start for Federer. Wonderful. Well, I'll
0: see you Uh, in a few days for uh, Grand Slam number 2, which I believe is the 2004 Australian Open. Correct. I think this was a very solid and respectful outing for uh, Roger Federer, and I think we
1: did it justice. And I'll talk to you in a few days, buddy. Great. Yeah, it felt like the 2003 Wimbledon final. It was a solid workmanlike effort. There you go. Love it. Take care. All the best
0: to you and yours, Brian.